Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 46, The Fall of Fort Vaux. Last time, we discussed the difficulties the Germans faced as they drove to capture Mort Holm in Hill 304. After weeks of bitter fighting, a renewed attack on the 3rd of May finally brought the Western Heights under German control. The contest for the Western Heights had been vicious and costly, and both armies suffered terribly. But in the end, the Germans could count it a victory. The French guns, which had for months brought terrible casualties on their units to the east, were silenced. And for the first time, the path to Verdun was finally clear. Watching the battle atop Mord Holm through his binoculars, Crown Prince Wilhelm described its capture as magnificent and awe-inspiring, comparing it to the German victories of 1914, writing, quote, Mord Holm flamed like a volcano, and the air and the earth alike trembled at the shock of thousands of bursting shells, he later wrote in his memoir. Certainly, the Crown Prince had every right to be optimistic. In a battle always costly yet never decisive, the capture of the West Heights was the first significant gain for the Germans since February. With the French army reeling, it was now time to press towards Verdun with full force. With the exception of the Crown Prince, no German officer saw this more clearly than Falkenhayn. As we discussed previously, Falkenhayn's optimism had wavered throughout March and April, but the recent success in May breathed new life into the army chief. With diplomatic pressure mounting, Falkenhayn was eager to seize the opportunity and strike at Verdun as soon as possible. The focus of the fighting would thus shift again, from the west bank back to the east, bringing the battle to a violent crescendo. The path to Verdun, however, was not as straightforward as the Germans would have liked, and France's resolve to defend it had not wavered. Although Douaumont remained in their hands, the German lines on the east bank formed a dangerously sharp salient. Meijan's attempt to retake Douaumont on the 22nd of May had made clear that if the Germans wished to hold Douaumont, their lines must be extended southward. The problem was that the terrain further south was the Dragon's Teeth, a complex layer of forts that if not navigated carefully enough, could spell disaster. Directly opposite the German lines were a network of forts, each smaller yet nor less formidable than Douaumont. These forts, consisting of Fort Vaux to the north, Fort Souville to the east, and Tavernes to the west, form a triangular system known as the Timon Stronghold. After the debacle at Fort Douaumont, Pétain had gone to great lengths reinforcing this sector, proclaiming the set front as the line of resistance. For the French, the ground here was near sacred, and although the fighting had swung to the west bank that spring, the east was never really quiet. Small-scale attacks lengthened the daily casualty lists, and artillery continued to pound the earth into a morass over which men struggled and died. But for June 1916, the East Bank would again be the site of pitched fighting, as the Germans sought to break through the team on stronghold. Since its most northern fort, Fort Vaux, was closest to the German line, it was there where the blunt of the attack would fall. The story of Fort Vaux, the attack, siege, and subsequent capture of the fort, stands out above the rest when we think of battles on the Western Front. It plays out like a Hollywood drama, with an exhausted, outmatched garrison defending against a well-supplied enemy. Even the nature of the battle was totally different. Instead of being fought in foxholes and trenches, Vaux was contested in the corridors and barracks deep inside the structure. It is a story of human endurance in the most horrific conditions, 
making it, as Alistair Horne described, the most heroic, isolated action of the entire war. I spent a bit more time combing over the fine details, so hopefully I can do it justice. First built in 1880, Fort Vaux underwent a series of renovations before it was completed in 1911. Trapezoidal in shape, it was protected by a deep trench network enfiladed by machine gun posts at three junctures. Of all the Verdun forts, Vaux was the smallest, occupying a total area of some 700 square meters, making her about a quarter of the size of Fort Douaumont. Nevertheless, she held a commanding position on the east bank, and the surrounding terrain made her an imposing challenge. Despite her relative smallness, Vaux was greatly assisted by her strategic positioning. Located three kilometers southeast of Douaumont, the terrain north of the fort slopes downwards into a valley, which, prior to the battle, was pockmarked with uneven forests and ravines, which acted like a natural barrier. An attacking army would thus need to fight their way uphill, which, for the Germans in 1916, posed the only option. Trying to outflank Vaux from the west would only invite counterfire from the neighboring, much larger, Souville and Tavennes, or worse, risk the chance of being caught in a salient between all three. French military planners knew what they were doing. They knew in advance that any attack on the fort would most likely originate from the Vouvre Plain, a large flat area directly east of Vaux parallel to the Meuse. Military theorists were quick to identify this, and one of the reasons for Vaux's construction was to eliminate this opportunity. Vaux had a dominating view of the plain, and could spot any movement from miles around. Nevertheless, the Vouvre approach remained a tantalizing option for the Germans, which they had tried to secure twice, once in 1914 and again in February 1916. Both attempts were unsuccessful. This seemed to prove the theorists correct, but later events on the Western Front would require that Vaux be stripped of her armament, leaving her undermanned and underarmed. Like many of the Verdun forts, Vaux had long been deprived of her weaponry. Recent upgrades in 1911 had given her three observation posts protected by steel domes, and three retractable gun turrets which housed a complement of 75mm field guns. By 1915, these had all been removed, leaving only a dozen 8mm Shawshat machine guns in their place. Despite the well-documented shortfalls of the Shashat, which were highly prone to jamming, Vaux's garrison had put what was available to them to good use. Sections of the fort had been cordoned off, and mobile machine gun nests were set up which could be shifted through a series of predetermined checkpoints. Flash forward to the summer of 1916, and Fort Vaux had already seen its share of bloodshed. The Germans first tried to seize the fort in March. For five days, they threw in all the guns and reserves they could muster, but to no avail. Vaux had been shelled by 150, 210, and 310mm artillery, yet her carapace remained unbreached. As the fighting at Verdun raged, Vaux was transformed into a transcendent symbol on its own, a Great War version of the Alamo, so to speak. While inside the fort you were relatively safe, the battlefields beyond was the stuff of nightmares. Since at this time, the French still held the Western Heights, their gunners were able to pour diagonal counterfire against the German positions north of the fort reducing the landscape into a quagmire of horror, fear, filth, and confusion. The remains of man and horse were everywhere. Soldiers caught in the barbed wire or wounded by shrapnel lay howling for hours before exhausted medics could reach them. One eyewitness recorded that the surrounding area was so churned up by shells that the earth had become as fluid as sand, causing soldiers to slip with each step or disappear into the muck. The smell of decomposition seeped into the men's clothings and rations. Even the water tasted of death.
Indeed, Fort Vaux had become a microcosm of the greater battle, the French staking all on its defense, and the Germans suffering just as terribly to claim it. By May's end, the heights of Mordholm and Hill 304 were in German hands, allowing Falkenhayn to double down his offensive and swing the focus of the campaign back to the east bank. For Falkenhayn, his strategy of exhausting the French was nearing results. The loss of the Western Heights and subsequent failure to retake Fort Douaumont hinted that enemy morale was at an all-time low. With Pétain now elevated and the aggressive duo of Naval Mejan calling the shots, the German chief could look forward to the final push towards the citadel. The planning phase of the offensive, codenamed Operation Makeup, began on the 22nd of May and lasted until the 28th. Its objective was relatively simple, to capture staging areas for the final push on Verdun. Forgetting his cautious nature, Falkenhayn made available five divisions, spread among three attacking corps for the initial assault. This was a massive force, totaling some 60,000 men, including artillery and cavalry brigades. Given that the Timont stronghold covered an area of five square kilometers, this averages out to one soldier for every meter of front. Although the Germans could still muster a sizable force, they were about to enter this next phase of Verdun without a crucial piece of weaponry. Despite outnumbering the French in artillery, with some 2,200 guns to 1,800, the nucleus of their arsenal, the 420mm Big Bertha cannons, which had shattered the Belgian fortresses at Liège and Namur, were nearing the end of their tour. These steel monstrosities, which could throw an 820kg shell, had spent their spring pummeling the Verdun forts day and night. Initially, the French were powerless to stop them, forcing men at the front to endure their stomach-churning bombardments without hope of retaliation. After time, however, men grew accustomed to the daily shelling. The Big Berthas had fired more shots than they were designed to, barrels needed reboring, and several had to be disassembled for maintenance and repair. One had even backfired, incinerating its crew. The denouement of the Big Berthas began when French engineers picked up a Dutch shell near Fort Moulinville, just a few kilometers south of Vaux. Experts were able to calculate the shell's trajectory of descent, and based on that, pinpoint the location of the gun that fired it. As the effectiveness of the Big Berthas wavered and more Dutch shells were picked up, counterfire from the French batteries were able to knock out these massive guns one by one. By the time of the attack on Fort Vaux, the Germans could count just four semi-operational cannons compared to the original 13 they had back in February. This would give the French garrison at Vaux a much-needed advantage. The German attack on Fort Vaux commenced at 2 a.m. on June 2, 1916. In the one-hour opening bombardment, 1,700 shells crashed onto the fort and its surrounding area. Gun placements collapsed, and ditches were filled with earth and water. Large blocks of concrete sealed off the main entrance. From the positions north of the fort, two battalions of German infantry began to fight their way up the ridge. The French had set up a hook-shaped defense ring, consisting of regimental companies dispersed in the various woods and dikes. The fighting in this terrain was close-quarter and brutal. Men on both sides were quick to realize that rifles were useless, dropping their arms in exchange for hand grenades and bayonet. Hand-to-hand -hand struggles ensued, as the hillsides were swept with artillery and machine gun fire. The French defenders, led by Captain Charles Delver of the 101st Infantry, put up a spirited resistance. Delver and his men had spent five days in their ravines north of Vaux, three of them without sleep and little in the way of food or water. 
the pitched fighting on June the 2nd proved to be the final straw. Having exhausted the last of their munitions, Dalbert's men were forced to withdraw south of the fort. Elsewhere, the Germans had seized the remains of Vaux village to the south, along with the woods of Bois de Fumen to the west, making Dalbert's position no longer attainable. By 5 o'clock that morning, on June the 2nd, the Germans secured the ravines at the base of the hill, and preparations for the assault on Vaux itself were underway. When it was first built, Vaux had been designed to accommodate a garrison of 250 men, but in the chaos since the German attack, this number had swelled to over 600. Vaux had become a refuge, a mismatch of riflemen, medical orderlies, signalers, engineers, and diggers, none from any defined unit. In charge of these 600-odd souls was a tough colonial soldier from Bordeaux, Sylvain Eugenie Reynal. Major Reynal was born on the 7th of March, 1867. His family originated from Montauban in the south, where his father ran a successful boot-making firm. Reynal was an experienced leader and wore the scars to prove it. He had already been wounded twice, once in 1914 and again in October 1915, when a shell splinter took off a chunk of his hip bone, leaving a hole the size of a golf ball in his lower back. If it didn't kill him, a wound of this severity should have invalidated him out of the army. But at 49 years of age, Reynal still felt he could be of some service. French army losses in 1915 meant that experience was at a premium. In short, France needed every man they could get, and Reynal soon found himself a new command. His wounds kept him from active trench duty, which was considered too arduous. Because of his wounds, the major supported himself on a cane and walked with a perpetual limp. According to Henry Bordeaux, a staff officer who wrote a series of books on the battle, Reynel had only two requests for his future post, that it required little movement and plenty of danger. Reynel got his wish. It was given command of Fort Vaux on the very eve of the German attack. With his pet cocker spaniel in tow, Reynel arrived at Fort Vaux on the 24th of May, and was immediately struck by the level of disorganization. The fort was shrouded in darkness. Power had been out for weeks, and radio communication was severed. To communicate with the outside world, Reynel had just two options, a Morse blinker light relaying to Fort Souville, or the four remaining carrier pigeons still cooped in the loft, one of which will come to have an important role in the coming drama. As the summer of 1916 heated up, so too did the battlefields. The air was cloaked in humidity, mixed with the nauseating smell of nitrates and wounded men. When he took the job as the new Vaux Commandant, Reynel had expected to take over the 250-man garrison he signed up for. Instead, he was greeted by the full 600. Needless to say, this did not help his optimism. Dozens lay loitering in the corridors and barracks, unable or unwilling to risk the dangers outside. This posed a double problem for the new commander. Munitions, medical, and food rations for the fort were calculated for a 250-man garrison with resupply expected every 10 to 12 days. But with 400 additional mouths to feed, Reynel appreciated that the struggle outside would be nothing compared to the struggle inside. He soon realized that ejecting these fugitives would be akin to sending them to their deaths, so instead set them to work fortifying every neck, nook, and cranny they could find. Vaux's garrison worked morning, noon, and night. By doing so, Reynel made his intention clear. Vaux would not be caught sleeping like Duelmond. The French withdrew into the fort. Entrances were sealed, 
and the corridors were lined with a jigsaw defense line of overlapping machine gun and grenade posts. Although hastily constructed, the claustrophobic setting of the fort gave the French a unique advantage. The Germans could only advance from one direction, meaning each barricade would need to be seized before pressing forward. This would give the fighting inside the fort a particularly savage character. The attack on Fort Vaux began just before dawn on June the 2nd. From an observation post, Renault watched helplessly as the Germans swarmed up the hill. With no artillery at his disposal, Renault had set up a pair of machine gun nests in the northern galleries. German infantry, who traversed the base then jumped into the ditch, were instantly pinned down by enfilading fire. An intense struggle in the northern gallery soon unfolded which lasted most of the day. The Germans remained pinned to the rubble until one of the French machine guns jammed. They were quick to seize the opportunity and use grenades to silence the crew and capture the position. By 4pm, the Germans would add the opposite northern gallery to their tally. With the two northern galleries in their possession, the Germans were able to surround the fort and begin to take the battle inside. Men of the 158th Powderborn Regiment were the first to seize an access point. Finding the door barricaded, the squad leader tried to breach it with grenades, but an ill-timed fuse caused the pack to explode before the officer could clear. The lieutenant received a face full of shrapnel and was dragged off by his remaining infantry. This setback caused the Germans to second-guess their approach. Suspecting that the French had laid traps along the main routes, the Germans erred on the side of caution and withdrew to reconsider their approach. This gave Renau enough time to reinforce the shattered door with sandbags and an extra machine gun. By the evening of June the 2nd, the battle for Fort Vaux was well underway. Renau's garrison had stalled the enemy advance, but with the northern galleries lost, the Germans were not going anywhere. So as the sun dipped lower and the battlefield was bathed in an orange glow, Renau dispatched his first two pigeons, one to report that Vaux remained unbreached and that reinforcements were urgently needed. Although the Germans were temporarily halted, it was not long before they took another crack at it. At 3 o'clock in the morning on June the 3rd, a tremendous explosion rocked the northeast section of the fort. The 158th had breached the carapace and began to file into the main access. The narrow corridors of the fort, however, soon proved a death trap for the German pioneers. Each hallway was just over one meter across, meaning they could only enter two men abreast. These were easy targets for the tightly packed French machine guns. As the first waves of men were decimated, panic spread throughout the German ranks. Those stricken with fear tried to claw their way back, trapping those behind them in the crush. The bodies began to pile up. The fighting in these corridors was savage, even by Verdun standards. The battles were personal, up close, and fought in near total darkness. Bullets ricocheted off the walls, and the gas from explosives turned the air into an unbreathable curtain. This, saying nothing of the concussions which broke eardrums and rattled teeth. A French survivor from Vaux later recalled the grisly scenes, writing, quote, Our bombs made gaps in their ranks, but reinforcements were continually coming up. Their dead and wounded created shifting heaps, and to add to the horror of it, these were cut and torn by the splinters from our projectiles. End quote. At his command post along the southwest corridor, Renau was organizing his defense as best he could. Although the fort held, Renau knew it was only a matter of time before morale began to crack. As the cacophony of screams and gunfire roared throughout the fort, a steady flow of wounded arrived in the aid station. There was little Renau or the exhausted medical staff could do to help. The heat of battle caused the temperatures inside to rise considerably 
while the smell of burned flesh and decomposition caused many to fall ill. Back in Verdun, the situation at Vaux was not lost. The regional commander ordered an immediate counterattack from the French 124th. Within minutes of reaching the southern approach, the operation had already become a complete debacle. Ordering his troops to attack across a lunar landscape in broad daylight, armed with maps referencing landmarks long since destroyed, the 124th never got within reach of Vaux. Fresh German troops had surrounded the fort overnight, and pounced upon their unsuspecting opponent. By noon, the survivors of the 124th were driven off with bayonets, leaving Reynal and the Vaux garrison to again fend for themselves. The morning of June the 4th would be a day like no other. It began eerily quiet. A stillness had settled on the battlefield, and for the first time in weeks, men at the sharp end felt calm. At Vaux, the Germans had withdrew, giving Renault's men some time to collect themselves. But the intermission did not last. Over the night, the Germans had brought up additional flamethrowers in an effort to burn the garrison out. Aiming the nozzles through the apertures of the fort, the German pioneers unleashed their terror weapons on the slumbering garrison. Flames penetrated deep down the corridor, filling the fort with a black and acrid smoke. Working on hands and knees, with scraps of cloth tied over their mouths, the men of Vaux tried desperately to push the pioneers back. Windows were smashed, and armored plates were hastily removed for better ventilation. As the smoke bellowed from the fort, a sentry at Fort Souville observed that it looked like Vaux was sinking into the underworld. Hoping to seize the advantage, the Germans again entered the fort, bringing their flamethrowers along with them. In the tightly packed corridors, this was a deadly mistake. Led by a wounded lieutenant, a gang of survivors manned one of the machine guns and beat the invaders back with rifles and grenades. A stray bullet punctured a flamethrower tank and exploded, consuming its operator and wounding dozens in the corridor. The flamethrowers were eventually beaten back, but the terror weapon had done its job. Fifteen wounded men, suffering from horrible burns and disfigurement, were sent to the aid station. Besides a small ration of rum and a few words of comfort, there was little the exhausted orderlies could do to help. Hobbling along on his cane, Major Reynal knew time was short. Attempts to contact Fort Souville via blinker light had come to naught. Seeing the black smoke pour from Vaux's encasement, the Commandant of Souville assumed the fort had already been taken, and that any blinker messages were a German ruse. Requests to send reinforcements were answered with words of encouragement, but little else. Cut off from the outside world, Reynal had no choice but to send word to the Citadel. Turning to his fourth and final carrier pigeon, Reynal described a hastily written message to be sent to regional command at Verdun. Badly gassed from the morning's flamethrower attack, the pigeon took off for the citadel. It reached Verdun some time later and collapsed dead on arrival. A nearby comms officer was there to receive the incoming message, and upon reading Reynal's words, became witness to one of the more dramatic episodes birthed at Verdun. Reynal's message was clear-cut, yet no less sobering. It read, quote, We are holding, but relief is imperative. Communicate with us by a Morse blinker from Souville, which does not reply to our calls. This is my last pigeon. End quote. In another day, another time, the story of Reynal's final pigeon would be considered comical, but it goes to show how desperate France had become. Any news was good news and overnight, the pigeon became a sort of war hero. In recognition of its efforts, it was awarded a leg ring in the colors of the Legion of Honor, and in the 1920s, 
donations from various pigeon breeder guilds erected a monumental plaque placed at the door of Fort Vaux. The bird, given the appropriate nickname, Valiant, was later stuffed and put on public display, even appearing on popular postcards in the 1920s. I've posted a couple of photos up at the Great War Podcast.podbean.com in case you think I'm making this stuff up. But despite the heroics of our avian friend, the defense of Fort Vaux was soon to crack. Not from artillery or German tenacity, but from a broken water cistern. As we discussed back in episode 33, the Verdun forts had fallen to disrepair prior to the war. By removing their guns to other sectors of the front, maintaining them fell behind on the priority sheet. In an appalling piece of negligence, inspectors had made their concerns about Vaux's water supply noted, but senior command decided to ignore the advice. This oversight would prove fatal. While Army Command knew of the problem, they had failed to notify Reynal prior to him taking command. When he arrived, the cisterns, which drew their water from a pond northwest of the fort, had read full, and for days no one had noticed. But as water was withdrawn and distributed, the cistern gauge remained unmoved. That was until the sergeant in charge of water supply reported to Reynal that the cistern was almost empty. It was calculated that it had only been half full when the battle began. In his memoirs, Reynal admits that his first instinct was to blame treachery, but he was quickly assured that the broken gauge was the culprit. With the heat and stink growing inside the fort, Reynal had no choice but to distribute the last water ration, less than a quarter pint per person. Many had not had a drop in over 24 hours. With the sick and wounded lingering in the fort, Reynal pondered his next move. Hunched over his desk, he knew a desperate risk had to be taken. If they were to survive, the superfluous men would have to evacuate. For lack of a better term, they had become useless mouths. And besides, there was little Reynal could do for them anyway. Himself shivering from sickness and tortured with thirst, he dispatched a runner, a 19-year-old officer cadet, Leon Buffet, to re-establish contact with the Citadel. With a squad of a dozen men, Buffet left the fort on the night of June the 5th. Scrambling across the shattered landscape in pitch darkness, Buffet reached the refuge of Fort Tavernez and then Verdun itself a few hours later. From there, he passed through the hands of the local governor, sector commander, and finally onto Nevel himself, who was relieved to hear that Vaux remained in the fight. Impressed by the bravery of the young lad, Nevel decorated him and promised an immediate counterattack. In a fit of excitement, Buffet then volunteered to return to Fort Vaux and deliver the news to Reynal. Miraculously, Buffet managed to avoid the German guns a second time, but was nearly killed upon re-entering the fort. A nervous sentry, startled by the sudden appearance of Buffet emerging from the darkness, nearly ran him through with his bayonet. With two clochés now to his name, Buffet made his way inside before risking a third. The reappearance of a wide-eyed Buffet proved a boost to saggy morale. Reynal personally embraced him when he told of Nevel's promised counterattack. Their thirst and fatigue forgotten, the garrison prepared to assist the relief effort. At 2 a.m. on the 6th of June, Nevel's counterattack got underway. The Vaux garrison could see the horizon light up, and the barks of 75mm field guns roared into the darkness. But this attack, like many at Verdun, proved to be a false dawn. The guns were overshooting their targets, passing clear over the fort and the German lines. In the smoke and dust of the bombardment, Reynal's blinker signals went unseen by Fort Souville. Powerless to do much else, 
the garrison watched as the relief force, made up of just a single battalion, marched straight into the German defenses. French infantry were isolated and picked off one by one. It took less than an hour before the remaining pockets officially surrendered. Having witnessed the collapse of this second effort, morale was at its lowest ebb. That evening, Renau toured the fort. By now, all the men were near mad with thirst. Renau saw some licking slime and moisture off the walls. Others had passed out completely, or lay retching in the corridors having drank their own urine in desperation. Since the 4th of June, none had had more than a quarter pint of dirty, foul-smelling water. Adding to the torture, Vaux's pantry remained well-stocked, with cans of dry biscuits and salted beef packed to the roof. This was all too much for the exhausted major. Appalled at what he saw, and realizing no relief was coming, Reynaud decided Fort Vaux had done its duty. It had held out for nearly a week, and fought tenaciously against the German advance. With artillery, grenades, and flamethrowers at their disposal, the Germans had seized just 30 meters of corridor along the main latrine. That evening, Vaux sent its last blinker message to Souville, and Renau drew up a letter for the German commander, which was passed through the barricade. In the early morning of June 7, 1916, the Germans entered Fort Vaux proper. 500 survivors, plus Renau and his terrified but very much alive pet cocker spaniel, marched past the German guards. One witness described the exhausted garrison as the living image of misery. To the Germans, victory had been bittersweet. The capture of Vaux had cost 2,678 men and 64 officers. The French, 163 killed and 200 wounded. German medics tended the wounded on both sides, while those able enough to stand drank themselves sick at the first muddy shell hole. Later that evening, Renau was taken to see Crown Prince Wilhelm. In a symbol of gratitude and respect, the Crown Prince spoke to Renault in fluent French, insisting that it was thirst, not the Germans which made the fort surrender. For the Crown Prince to make such a comment is telling. Actually, when you consider how many Germans had been killed fighting at Verdun, it comes across as rather indifferent, if not entirely dismissive. Had Vaux been equipped with its proper guns, or received any sort of resupply, there is no question that it could have held out longer. The Crown Prince was probably just being chivalrous, but it goes to show that the Battle of Verdun had slipped beyond the control of any one man. No matter how tightly laid the plans were, it often came down to sheer luck that things would work out. In respect to Reynal's command, the Crown Prince presented the Major with an officer's sword. Reynal was rather embarrassed. He had arrived at Vaux with only a walking stick, but since he was in no mood to explain this to the German, he accepted the gift gracefully. Afterwards, Major Renal was then marched into two and a half years of captivity. He would be liberated at the armistice in 1918 and retire a lieutenant colonel. So there you have it, the fall of Fort Vaux and Renal's besieged garrison. Who doesn't love a heroic last stand? As for what it meant for the Battle of Verdun as a whole, the fall of Vaux was pretty significant. For the Germans, it marked the first time a major fort had fallen since Douaumont, which caused great celebrations in Berlin. The news arrived on the 8th of June, while the nation was still in euphoria over the success against the Grand Fleet at the Battle of Jutland. This proved a much-needed boost to the otherwise miserable home front. But for the Entente, it had far more reaching implications. In France, the capture of Vaux sent the chamber into hysterics. Nightmares of 1870 began to resurface, 
and fears that the Germans might capture Verdun became real. The French, however, did not direct their anxiety against Nevel, Joffre, or Pétain, nor any German for their part, as you might expect. Instead, it went towards the British. Because of Verdun's incessant drain on French manpower, the planning for the upcoming Somme offensive was becoming a chiefly British responsibility. For many Frenchmen, Joffre especially, this presented an uncomfortable truth, that France was at the mercy of their ally. Douglas Haig had initially planned the start date of the offensive for August the 1st, but after the loss of Vaux, this date seemed too remote. From his new digs at Barley Duke, Pétain pleaded with Joffre, for once in agreement that further delays on the Somme front might lead to France's collapse. On the 10th of June, the same day Falkenhayn met with Conrad to discuss the Russian attack in Galicia, Joffre met with Douglas Haig, hoping to convince the British general to kick the Somme to an earlier date. Haig compromised, and set the new date for July the 1st, with the preliminary bombardment beginning six days earlier. But let us not forget that the capture of Fort Vaux was a means to an end and not the end itself. But Rennell's stubborn defense had stalled further attempts on the Timon stronghold. In fact, they had not even begun. A German soldier was correct to boast about the capture of Vaux, but a French prisoner was equally so to argue that two out of the three forts remained in French hands. Souville and Tavernez were much larger and formidable. To seize them, the Germans would need to attack a two-kilometer-long crest that ran like a crossbar of a letter H. These two forts, supported by the smaller but equally menacing forts at Belleville and Saint-Michel to the southwest, assured that the battlefield would be a killing ground, with the village of Fleury right smack in the middle. Beginning on the 23rd of June, the first German assault would hit the breach. Fighting along the crest would rage back and forth. This would be Falkenhayn's final thrust at Verdun, and the chief of staff played all his chips. The guns would shriek as they had in February, surrounding the French in a torrent of metal. Landmarks would be blasted beyond recognition, and Fleury would disintegrate into the earth. In the next episode, we're going to cover this next chapter of the Battle of Verdun, which will serve as a sort of cap-off before we turn our sights to the Battle of the Somme in earnest. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoy the show and are looking to help us out, go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 46 of the Great War Podcast, and we'll see you again shortly.